Welcome, everyone. You are listening to Forged in Fire, where we explore how LGBTQ plus leaders develop their leadership superpowers. You'll hear from guests as they share how they navigated their journey through adverse and crucible experiences to develop into amazing leaders. Forged in Fire is hosted by Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram and Dr. Liz Cavallaro. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram. I'm an astronautical engineer in the United States Space Force and one of the senior transgender officers in the military. I'm a passionate advocate for the value inclusion brings to organizations. And I'm Dr. Liz Cavallaro. I'm an adult development scholar and associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College. I'm also an experienced researcher, interviewer, leader development practitioner, and professional executive coach. Please join us as we discover the inspiring stories of how LGBTQ leaders are forged. Welcome to another episode of Forged in Fire. We're so glad you joined us today for our conversation with Paula Nira. Paula is truly a Renaissance woman. After graduating from the United States Naval Academy in 1985, Paula served as a surface warfare officer, including serving in mine warfare combat during Operation Desert Storm. After she left the Navy in 1991, she began a career as a registered nurse and is certified in emergency nursing and has focused her career on adult emergency care and trauma resuscitation. Having been both a nurse educator in emergency medicine at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and as the co-chair of the Johns Hopkins Transgender Medicine Executive Task Force. In November 2016, she became the founding clinical program director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Transgender Health and served in this role until 2022. This past year, she was named as the Johns Hopkins Medicine Program Director of LGBTQ Equity and Education in the Office of Diversity, Inclusion, and Health Equity. But that's not all. Uh, Paula is also an attorney and a member of the Maryland Bar. She's led work in the repeal of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell law and in the change of military regulations to allow for transgender military service. In 2016, the Secretary of the Navy named her a co-sponsor of the USNS Harvey Milk. And in November of 2021, she had the experience of christening the ship in San Diego. She's also been awarded the GLMA Achievement Award and is a fellow in the American Academy of Nursing in recognition for her leadership in advancing diversity and inclusion, both in the United States Armed Forces and in healthcare. Now, Paula, normally... Uh, I like to talk about why, you know, we asked someone to be on the show. It's hard to say that your introduction didn't do that for us. So many different things with leadership aspects spread throughout your career made it like, wow, what an opportunity to talk to this person that's done so many different things and see how she developed into this leader that she is. So I want to start kind of early on. Now, you've talked in in other interviews about knowing who you were from a very early age, but that there's a big difference between knowing and accepting. Can you talk a little bit about that journey of yours from getting from knowing to accepting who you are and what that meant for you as a leader? 
Sure. Well, first, let me start by saying, you know, it's so great to be here with you today. And, you know, thanks for giving me the opportunity to participate in this, because I think what uh, what you folks are doing is, is really fantastic. Yeah, I guess, you know, going back into the dim re recesses of time when I was young, we're talking now, I'll, I'll be 60 next month. One month from now is my 60th birthday. So I'm at that point where it's now looking at reflection and looking at how I've changed and my role in the fight has changed. Uh, but looking back, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s was a much different time when we look at LGBTQ plus um, issues and acceptance in society. I mean, I was six years old when the Stonewall riots happened. And oh, by the way, that happened two blocks down the block from where my father grew up because my family, my parents grew up in Greenwich Village in New York City. You know, so that's the, the neighbor, you know, that's the family block where all of that happened. Yeah. Obviously, when I was born in 1963, the doc took a quick look at, you know, my genitals and said, Mrs. Neary, you have a lovely baby boy. And I always say that the doc didn't know any better, mom didn't know any better, neither did I. But by the time I was about eight, so now we're talking early 1970s, I knew something was different about me, but had no vocabulary. You know, this was, a t you know, long before the internet, long before social media. You know, it wasn't as if little eight-year-old me was going to go to the neighborhood library and ask the librarian for a library book about this because I didn't even know what this was. A couple of years later, when I finally had the initial conversation with my mom, you know, I'd come to the senses that, hey, it's, I'm a girl. It's, I'm not like all the other little boys. And, you know, it, it's not anything specific because everything that we use, would use to describe it in terms of womanhood versus manhood, boy versus girl, winds up devolving into stereotypes and gender roles is I knew who I was and, and trying to figure out, okay, you know, in this binary category where I fit, it's like, okay, I'm in here, but I don't really feel like this is where I am. I really feel like I should be over there. Well, that conversation with my mom didn't, you know, mom freaks out. And I immediately learned all of that unconscious, cis heteronormative bias message this is bad. You don't want to be one of those people. This is shameful. Don't ever have this conversation again. Don't say anything to your dad. Now, at the same time frame, you know, that young adult, you know, young adolescence, another piece of me and my identity comes into crystal clarity. Now, I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, blue collar background. My dad never went to high school. He was a teamster. My mom graduated from high school, was a secretary, and then became a school crossing guard. You know, a very simple middle-class, blue-collar American existence. My grandparents on my dad's side immigrated from Spain, so I'm a second-generation American. There used to be a Navy base in Bayonne. And one, one uh, day, we were driving home. From a, from a family gathering in Brooklyn, and I saw the USS Fisk, a World War II-era destroyer that was in the reserves and based in New York, coming into New York Harbor. And it was a cold, crisp fall day. 
the water was calm, ship was coming in with some speed, so the big white bow wave, the national ensign at the top of the mast, stiff in the breeze, you know, a recruit, you know, I've always described it as it was a recruiting officer's dream shot, you know, that, that picture, right, you know, right out of central casting. And I remember looking at my dad and saying, I want to be part of that. So at the same time in my life where, you know, I'm questioning who I am in a gender way, my purpose, or what I would, would have said was my purpose when I was younger, absolute clarity, I was going to be a naval officer. And, you know, that, that understanding that accepting who I was as a teenager meant sacrificing that dream before it even started. Because it was, you know, a time when, you know, the level of animus and lack of understanding was even worse than it is today. And I wanted to be a naval officer. Uh, you know, that that's, I was called to it. So in high school, you know, focused on what I needed to do. And I was, you know, an athlete, a scholar, you know, the, the well-rounded kid. Nothing very effeminate about me. But it didn't change how I felt. I just knew that I couldn't really talk about this and it really needed to compartmentalize it and needed to throw myself into uh, what I needed to do to get to the Naval Academy and then grow as a Naval officer in, in the service. So that was, you know, that's that early tension. And when you talk about like identity, so now looking back is, you know, when we talk about is it, you know, are we talking about leadership that's demonstrated by queer people or are we talking about queer leadership? And is there, a, is there a quantifiable difference in one as opposed to the other? And for me, you know, I always say that my sexual orientation and my gender identity is as meaningful to me as the fact that I have brown eyes. It is part of who I am. Now, living in a society that still makes distinctions based on sexual orientation and gender identity, that identity that I don't hide, I, you know, I'm, I'm me has shaped my experience in life. It's shaped my journey. And it certainly has impacted how I've developed as a leader in the last 30 years as opposed to the first 30 years. You know, the first 30 years was fitting into these structures. You know, how do I fit in? You know, how, how do I make this work? How do I learn? When we talk about leadership development, for me, again, back to an early age, is that I think, you know, I was the three influences in my life that put me on the path that really kind of guide and shaped how I view myself as a leader were my parents, the Jesuits, and the Navy. You know, my dad was the proudest E1 the Army ever produced. And, you know, for the, for the non-military folks, E1 is like the lowest rank you can be in the military. That's just, that's, you know, as you just get in the door. My dad volunteered for the Army after Pearl Harbor. He wasn't drafted. He spent three years in the Pacific. And he was always proud of his service. And what he imbued in me and, and my mom um, also imbued in me that, that sense of service. That if you've been blessed with talent and opportunity, you have an obligation to use that privilege, to, to use you know, the more modern way we look at this, to benefit humanity, to do. To, to, to do, uh, do something for someone else to be part of a higher purpose. I had the, uh, the fortune 
to attend a place called Regis High School in New York City. And I always joke that it is the number one Catholic high school in the United States. It's a private uh, Jesuit school on the Upper East Side of New York that is a full scholarship school. That's the only way you go. No, you know, nobody pays tuition. And I had the privilege of going there. And what I learned from the Jesuits, you know, the, you know, the Regian and Ignatian ideal is that you're a person for others. Reinforcing that initial language of my parents, that if you've been blessed with talent, you've got to use it for a greater good which really lines up with wanting to go to the Naval Academy and wanting to be an officer in the military because, you know, the mission of the Naval Academy is to create leaders, folks that are open to a career in the Navy, and then to be leaders in communities and in, in public service, you know, all across the board. And then obviously, you know, internalizing those lessons from the Navy, you know, the, the core values of honor, courage, commitment you know, a code of conduct, the oath that, that all of us who have served in the United States military, particularly those of us who were commissioned officers, that oath has what's guided me through what really seems like a disparate career path, you know, the Navy, and then going becoming a nurse, and then going to law school, and then back into healthcare. And it's that consistent realization um, that my calling was larger than just serving in uniform. Now, my naval career ended when I finally accepted my gender identity. Needing to live as who I authentically am in 1991 when I came home from Desert Storm meant resigning my commission and leaving in the Navy. It meant the sacrifice of my childhood dream. And if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, I would have described it as having to give up my calling. Hanging up my uniform merely put me on a different path of service. You know, it eventually, you know, discrimination and all of that led me into nursing and then led me to law school. And then when I was in law school, I had the opportunity to come back to Washington to work on the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And then subsequently changing the regulations that had barred transgender folks from service. And today, I say that, you know, I sacrificed my naval career, but I didn't give up my calling because my calling was a higher one. It was service to country. I've just gotten a chance to do it outside of wearing, you know, having to worry about what I wear when I get up in the morning. That's a, such an amazing journey and the broad theme of service as the calling it's so interesting how you described some of the contributors to, to feeling that calling being about doing something with your privilege, leveraging the things that have been given to you and then turning that into service towards others into some higher calling. And while so many of the aspects of your career have welcomed that opportunity to, to turn that privilege into service, I imagine also all of the ways in which you faced adversity or had obstacles placed in front of you that are not placed in front of other people. And so I'm wondering about that relationship of how those things also contribute and enhance your ability to serve your higher calling. Well, I, I think the, 
the ultimate facing of the adversity was deciding to leave the Navy was the most traumatic decision I have ever made in my life. It was the hardest decision. It was the most traumatic event. And I am still feeling the consequences of that 30 years from now, you know, 30 years on. I usually, my voice, if we talk about this a bunch, my voice will crack. Telling the Navy no, and at the time, not really being able to explain why, and knowing that fighting to stay in was would have been a really, really dumb battle to pick. Because I would not have won, and it wouldn't have changed things. But what that decision did, like I said, it, it changed the path. And that path led me to opportunities to go, again, to get involved with an organization called Service Members Legal Defense Network. It's now part of the Modern Military Association of America. And fight the change, the military. And in my case, it was my, my client was always the Navy. Is to make the Navy live up to the core values. You know, there's nothing honorable about requiring people to lie or live in the closet simply to serve your country. You know, so, so these policies were eroding, you know, the values of the service itself beyond the individual uh, price that, you know, it was forcing on so many people who wanted nothing more than to serve their country, you know, be able to take benefit of that service, whether it was trying to get education, uh, you know, some discipline to be able to get out of a bad environment, you know, see the world, you know, all of that stuff. And having to face that adversity put me on that path. And it also, you know, I, I'm much more passionate about my service now than I was when I was a serving officer. It was, I was enjoying what I was doing, but I don't think that I really understood the higher purpose nuances of it, where I understand that much better now. And that, you know, when I first got into this around the turn of the century, and that always sounds so weird for somebody old like myself, because I think I'm talking about, you know, the 1890s, and I'm really, you know, 20 years ago. I wanted to change the regulation so I could go back. And the reality was, it took too long. By the time we were able to change the environment. Father Time caught up with me. And it's the, you know, the, the, the dual lens. And, and again, as a leader, one of the things that we need to come and understand is how we look at things, so, you know, the perspective that we bring to what we do. And I'm, I'm not going to sit here as a hypocrite. This is a work in progress for me. Is yeah, I can I can I can choose to look at my path through a lens of loss and pain. I didn't get to finish my career. I didn't get to retire. I didn't get command. Those were all really egocentric things. Rather, look at it through a lens of service and satisfaction. I helped change the Navy and all the military by, you know, by extension. So that today, hundreds, if not thousands of other people get to fulfill their childhood dream. They get to serve. 
you know, officers like Bree get to do really fantastic things now, and they get to exemplify the quality that queer folks bring to the military. That's what I, you know, that, that, that's the lens I should look at things through because that's what officers are supposed to do. Your job as an officer is to accomplish your mission and take care of your people. And for the little part that I own of making that historical change, that's exactly what I did. So I lived up to my oath. I lived up to the standards. And having to face that adversity, having to accept who I was, allowed me to be able to do that. And, you know, it says, you know, as a Naval Academy grad, and you hear that, I, you know, I constantly reference being a Naval officer, being a Naval Academy. So when I talked about identity is, and I mentioned, you know, where sexual orientation and gender identity fall into Paul and Yura's sense of who Paul and Yura is. The fact that I was a Naval officer, the fact that I uh, graduated from the Naval Academy, much more important pieces of how I see myself and bringing that part to the, the community has been something um, that's been, you know, unique because the queer community is not very pro-military. Uh, you know, the history of the movement is actually very anti-military and to be able to apply the lessons and skills learned in one realm to actually be able to advance equity and address diversity and inclusion for uh, the LGBTQ plus community uh, is again, something that had my path stayed on that path never would have happened. Well, Paula, for many, many reasons, your story resonates with me on, on a host of levels. I want to talk about the, the cost of, subsuming one or more aspects of identity in order to engage in something that may be more important or to serve a higher purpose. And, and for me, in joining the military after September 11th, I did the same things to set aside a part of me because that was more important to serve and to do those things that mattered to something greater than myself. But now being able to serve authentically is a gift. It truly is. So I wanted to hear from you about what that meant for you to have to set part of your identity aside in order to serve something that mattered even more to you. What was the cost of that? And what might it have been if you could have reached for your authenticity earlier? Oh, uh, you know, you're talking to a, <laughs> you know, I said, you know, a frumpy old 60 year old battle axe. Uh, and, you know, the, the cost of that trauma of not being able to be my authentic self and continuing to serve, you know, the, the cost of that for me uh, has been a, a definite negative impact on my health. Uh High performing, you know, all of all of that. But one of the things in this is, and it's and it took it took me twenty seven years to give myself permission to go talk to somebody. You know, the military culture, even though it's gotten better, it's still still an issue about talking about emotional things, talking about the psychological impact of what we do 
it certainly wasn't an acceptable part of the culture 30 years ago when I served. So it took me a long time to give myself permission to say, hey, you need to talk to somebody about this. Because, you know, for me, you know, when I finally got to the point of saying, hey, I need to do this, the story that I tell is that, you know, when I was a junior officer, was on a ship, we did a security drill because we had the capacity to carry nuclear weapons. And in this drill, I wound up being issued a rifle and live, live ammunition. And I was someplace where I was all by myself. And out of the blue, you know, the cosmic voice says, you know, load the weapon, blow your brains out, or your pain ends. And my reaction to that voice was, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, right? where the hell did that come from? And now with a couple more decades, of that was God telling me, Slick, you are running on fumes. You eventually have to deal with who you are. Now, part of my childhood dream, too, is wanting to be an officer. I wanted to fly jets. I wanted to be, you know, Maverick before Maverick existed. <laughs> you know, I wanted to go fly, a, you know, fly fighter jets. And as a midshipman, I was a history major, and eye strain meant that I couldn't fly when I graduated. And I went into surface warfare, and I loved being on destroyers and, you know, loved doing that, too. But I got an opportunity to actually go back and retake my flight physicals, and I was accepted for naval aviation training as a lieutenant. So I actually got to Pensacola. And when I was in Pensacola getting ready to start ground school, you have to take another flight physical. And I had a couple of weeks to myself. And I realized that flying was not going to solve the gender issue. Getting my wings, becoming a pilot, was not going to end this issue. And what happens if that voice comes back? And this time around, swallowing my sidearm really does look like a better option. Or what happens if I say the wrong thing to the wrong person once before I'm able to retire? My career ends because this was at a time when merely asking for help to understand gender identity would have gotten me kicked out of the Navy. And probably would have gotten me kicked out with either a general discharge or an other than honorable discharge if somebody could, really, you know, because that was the level of animus. So, you know, what happened is, you know, I actually told the truth. I'd had a kidney stone off duty. And I know it was a kidney stone now as a nurse. is, And that gets you grounded. So I actually shared information with the flight surgeon that otherwise I would have kept my mouth shut about. And that allowed me to go into the Naval Reserves and be able to work, you know, to actually start seeing civilian medical care, to start dealing with all of this. And then 90 days later, Kuwait got invaded. And, you know, as you were saying, Bree, is when Kuwait got invaded, I had been in the Persian Gulf doing mine warfare operations during Operation Ernest Will. I was mine countermeasure officer. So I was one of a very small number of Naval officers that had real world experience doing this in the Persian Gulf. And I knew what the capacities of the, the, the countries were. So I realized that my place was with the fleet. So I put that, that, that initial stages of transitioning um, on hold because it was more important for me to serve than for me to continue to, you know, to look after myself. When I got home and after the summer of 1991, I didn't go. I didn't get to go to the Gulf until June of 1991 for 
you know, the Navy, you know, the Navy didn't have any money to recall me at the end of 1990 because of the fiscal budget and stuff. And I got recalled to, and I volunteered and I got recalled to active duty after the ground war was over, but you still couldn't sail in the Northern Persian Gulf because of the mine, you know, the water was mined. When I got home, I had, I had applied to a program that calls reservists back on active duty full-time. It used to be called the TAR program, Training Administration of Reserves. It's got a new name now. But it wasn't that I didn't finally accept that I'm a woman. It was that I didn't want to leave the Navy. And when I got home, I realized I needed, I needed to go be me. And two months after I resigned, I get a call from the Navy telling me I got accepted and they want me back on active duty. And on November 15th, 1991, after a week of getting up, going to the beach, crying my eyes out, having my heart break, I, find, I said no and, and walked away. You know, the Navy didn't find out why I walked away until a decade or so later when I was part of the process of setting the precedent for transgender veterans to be able to change the name on our DD-214s to reflect our correct names. Uh, but again, you know, talk about that, that cost. The way that I coped in the 1990s with the pain of that loss, I knew that if I stayed in shape, then the only reason why I couldn't serve were these regulations, you know, which were grounded in nothing more than discrimination and ignorance. So I allowed myself to get out of shape because if I couldn't meet the height, weight standards, if I couldn't meet the PT standards, I knew I couldn't serve. And by doing that, I'm sure that that had an element in developing diabetes. I've always thought that I had PTSD. And now as a veteran, finally, 30 years later, going through the VA disability process is that, yes, that, that is what I have. So having to make that decision, not being able to serve as my authentic self, had all those impacts on my health that now 30 years later, they're still there. Now I've been, again, back to being blessed blessed with the opportunity to continue to serve in this very, very unique way. So yeah, you know, like many, many, many people being a, you know, an A plus high performer overachiever and minimizing the actual cost that was taken on me as a person because the mission was so much more important than the me. You touched on so many themes that, you know, we'd love to explore and one thing that really stood out to me about that story is how strong the pull towards service was and how compelled you were by feeling what you needed to do that you set aside you in so many ways, in terms of health, in terms of being able to live authentically, in terms of moving down a path that you started and then stopped. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your relationship with taking care of you and engaging in self-care has evolved in different phases as you've been able to be out and authentic later on. The being able to be me from, you know, from after leaving the service and I've, you know, and I've, you know, it's one of the things I would always say, I don't have to come out because I've never been in once I left the service. It's, I'm just me. And what I'm saying is that if you know, if you look at my house right now, is that you know you'll see an American flag fl outside of my house and, an, and a Naval Academy flag. You know, my the bumper, the stickers on the back of my car shows that I'm a surface warfare officer. I served in Desert Storm, and I'm a member of the class of '85. You're not going to see a trans pride flag or a, a, a gay pride flag, but 
if you search for me on the internet, you easily find out <laughs> the things that matter to me and what I've been involved in. Because I don't, you know, because it is just, I'm me. And, you know, how that's, you know, evolved about taking care of me is that, you know, a lot of it is some um, unbrainwashing or, or de-indoctrination. You know, the military as an institution is very, very good at taking young civilians and turning them into military people. The military still does a lousy job of helping those people reintegrate back into a civilian world because unless you die on active duty, every single person in the military, whether you retire or you leave after you know however long you serve, you return to having to live in a civilian world that is markedly different than that military culture, that military environment. And you really aren't trained well enough you know, you aren't given the tools to really do that successfully. The military's gotten much, much better. Again, we're talking my, you know, three decades ago for myself. But it's, you know, it's been that, you know, that tough transition. And like I said it took over a quarter of a century to get past that cultural imperative of you don't ask for help, you don't acknowledge weakness or. And, and, and I use that word intentionally is that asking for help for emotional, psychological things is not weakness. It's actually strength. It's actually courageous. But, we, but we're unconsciously taught in that culture that it's weakness. And it took a long time to get past it. So today, now when I talk to you know, those coming behind me, it's like, hey, that's nonsense. You need to look at your mental health, your psychological health in the same way that you look at your physical health. You know, if you're not a full up round physically where you are, you know, not able to fully contribute to the mission and sometimes to the point where you're detrimental to the mission, you've got an obligation, a duty obligation to say, hey, wait a second. No, I can't do this. Well, that's just as real when we're dealing with behavioral health, mental health issues, you know, and again, as a society, we're still not there yet. Uh, but, it, but it's those things is that you have to take care of yourself. And by living authentically is that part of me is, you know, is, is it, Hey, I'm me. It's, you know, yes. Uh, like, like every, like everyone else in the queer community, I'm living in a time of, you know, threat. And fear, and you know that that fear is not irrational. You know, it's you know there are people that absolutely hate gay and trans folks, and using gay and trans as umbrella terms, that's real. And you know you have to accept that, and then figure out how to do it. And one of the things I always say that you know my role as a leader is is not to accommodate fear. That doesn't mean ignore it. That doesn't mean by be naive about it. But my job as a leader is to inspire courage because we're all afraid. But that can't be a strategy. That can't be the, the final word is, yes, we're afraid. Yes, we're under attack. Yes, you know, things should not be the way that they are. So, okay, so this is what we're going to do to change it. You know, this is what we're going to do to fight. This is what we're going to do to resist. This is what we're going to do to be resilient. And I'd much rather spend time talking about that stuff than just sitting around saying, oh, you know, woe is us, woe is us, you know, this is this is bad. 
yeah, it's bad. It stinks. I would use stronger language if it wasn't a podcast. (laughs) But this is what we're going to do to fight back. Because, yeah, we individually may fall. But someone else is going to stand up and the fight's going to go on. And it's a long, long struggle. And, you know, we use... We use the terms of war and battle sometimes and when we're describing this because it really is on some level a struggle between, you know, regression and ignorance and tyranny and enlightenment and acceptance. You know, for looking at it again through a military lens, you know, the military is better, is stronger. The mission can get accomplished in a much more holistic way every time we've allowed people who were different to actually be themselves and contribute and the same applies in the civilian world and it's how do you convince how how, you know how do you make that argument how do you change systems and structures to allow people to do it let's talk about that a little bit and how we as individuals develop those tools to continue the fight, those leadership tools that we need to move things forward. And you just talked about um, a military to civilian transition. And one thing we'd like to talk about is the fact that everybody transitions in, in one way or another, from military to civilian, from single to married, for trans people. Well, there's a big one in there too for us. Uh, but there's so many transitions that people experience in their lives. And for you, both as a trans woman and as someone who's made multiple career changes, I have to believe that that probably gives you a lot of different perspectives on challenges that you face or ways to lead people. How have those multiple changes, those multiple transitions, those many, many perspectives given you the tools to solve problems in unique ways that others might not be able to. I think it's in gaining the perspective that some, a lot of the stuff that we think is so important that defines what the solutions are really aren't so important. And no, there are lots of ways to solve a problem. And the idea is to stay focused on solving the problem and not getting bogged down in the, the, the petty differences, you know, or, or the differences that you think are so important whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about gender, whether we're talking about sexual orientation or gender identity. The bottom line is none of that stuff really matters. Is, you know, keeping your eye on the big prize. And, you know, as a human being, what do I, what do I want out of my fellow human beings? I want you to be kind. I want you to be a good person. I want you to be committed to making the world better for everybody. You know, I, you know, I, I am a Christian. Uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the notion of uh, doing something for the common good. And, you know, and, and, and again, that, that again ties back into that service that, that you know, the, the sublimation of the individual to the greater good, making the personal sacrifice for the greater good. And, you know, it says, you know, as a leader in trying to focus that is, I guess I, you know, I, I am probably a little bit more martial in my approach. And you know, the, the notion that, yes, individuals can change the system, but it doesn't happen overnight. It's a, and it's a pragmatic uh, 
utilitarianism as opposed to a utopian view. And it's the, the recognition, okay, here's a problem. It's going to take a long time to solve, and they're not simple. I mean, if they were simple, it, it would have been, been fixed already. So how do you, on a day-to-day basis, keep going for the small incremental changes, maintaining that resilience, maintaining the self-care, recognizing that you need to take care of yourself because this is a long, long, long um, view. It's, you know, it's not going to happen tomorrow. And you need to know when you need to step back and let someone else carry the load for a while. It's about recognizing that really at the end of the day, you only have two choices. You either quit and give up or you stay in the fight. However that is, however your role changes over time, you know, my role in the fight is different at 60 than it was at 40. But you find your place and you can continue to do it. You, you know, you, you, you support each other. Is because nobody, you know, nobody's doing this alone. And you develop the resolve is I am not going to be defeated. You know, one of the things for myself is, yes, I've obviously faced discrimination in my life, lost several jobs, you know, my naval career, all that sort of stuff. But on a day-to-day basis, very few, in fact, I honestly can't think of a real instance where someone came up to my face and wanted to say transphobic things directly to me or wanted to directly challenge me. And I think in part of why that happens is I make it very clear by my behavior, by my words, by my presence, that I'm not going to put up with that. Is It's just the, this is who I am. I am a lesbian, transgender woman of Hispanic descent, as well as Irish descent and French descent and I'm a second-generation American, and I dare you to discriminate against me. And that—that's you know the, you know the internalized homophobia, the internalized transphobia. You know those again lessons that like I said my mom taught me, without thinking about it as a kid, is yeah is recognizing that yes there is nothing shameful in being who you are. It's your character, it's your behavior and your actions and your words that define whether or not you're a shameful character or you're someone to be uh, looked up to. And, and, I, and I think, you know, the journey uh, and accepting of who I am has made that for me as a leader very clear. And that's why, you know, in, in some ways I know that I am very, uh, militant's probably not the right word, but that yes, as I take an uncompromising approach to it, is like like in, in, in trying to lead for folks in the community who recognize it and not everybody's out, um, you know, and, and recognizing, like I said, fear is not irrational. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a rational understanding of the environment we're in. But I also have very little empathy for victimhood. Is, you know, the decision whether or not you come out at a certain point in your life, in a certain environment in your life, to certain people in your life, is if you say, "Well, I can't come out because I'm going to lose my job. I might get beat up. You know, the na- you know my family's going to disown me, or the neighbors are going to disown me, or I'm going to get kicked out of my church." You're being a victim. You're allowing the environment to prevent you from living authentically. Now, 
that same circumstance, if you look at the environment and you say, hey, wait a second, I am who I am. And I'm, you know, the English language lacks the word other than saying I'm not ashamed. So we say we're proud. You know, it's, I'm cool with who I am. I'm proud of who I am, if you want to use that term. Is, and I can look at this environment and I can make a strategic decision that at this point in my life, at this moment, in this circumstance, being more authentic in a more public, shared way, I balance the risk-reward. And then I make my strategic decision at this moment in time. That's taking ownership. That's giving yourself a sense of power. And, and that's what I try to encourage people to do. Now, for me, it's, yeah, going back into the closet or trying to live in stealth would be a really dumb thing for me to try to do. Again, let's say, go look, go look me up. You can find out what I am. So me trying to say, trying to deny what I looked like when I was 18. And I'm just using an example, I know that many transgender folks do not like seeing pictures of themselves prior to, prior to transitioning or seeing their dead name is you can you can see what I looked like when I was a plebe at the Naval Academy online right now. So for me, it's like, yeah, you, that's what I looked like when I was 18. Uh, you know, don't, I look better now and uh, <laughs> I look more like who I am now. But that but I'm able to do that because I also think that, you know, I've, like I said, I've got lots of other armor that many people don't have. So that gets back to that privilege is that because I've had the experiences I've had and because I've had the training that I've had, I'm able to be more militant. I'm able to be a little bit more in your face than other people can be. So it's up to me that in the right moment to be in your face about it, to be, to say, is it, yeah, I dare you to come after me. Because if you're coming after me, you're not coming after somebody else who needs a little bit more time. Paula, you talked a lot about how you encourage others and you also shared reflecting on how your role in the fight has changed and that in the interest of self-care, sometimes that role needs to be stepping back and letting else someone else take the reins for a bit. And so I'm wondering throughout your career, how have you gone about helping enable and empower others to take the reins and then developing them so that they're ready to engage in that fight? I, I think because of my personality, I mean, it, it's been, it's something I've had to do consciously. Because my, by dint, I'm somebody that runs to the sound of the guns. I want to be at the point of point of attack. You know, and again, I'm using a bunch of military cliches, but I want to be where the action is. Want to be the person in the arena. And again, when I, you know, years ago, that was my role. Now that another generation of leaders is coming up, is to recognize that hey yeah i don't need to be the person in the in the arena anymore there are lots of other people that are just as capable just as smart if not more capable and smarter <laughs> than me that it's their time and now my role is to be the mentor is to share the experience and the perspective and then at times you know my role is to shut up and get out of the way is because it's unfair to those that come behind you, you know, to, to be the person looking over the shoulder and chiming in and being the Monday morning quarterback after you've retired. And when I say, you know, retired, I mean, you know, when you're no longer in the arena, 
and 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 that's been something for me to learn and get get more comfortable with and also find other ways to use that experience to benefit folks you know it's like and and i look at it you know in in the efforts to advance you know lgbtq plus equity within the military framework is that yeah i was part of leading those fights when those fights initially needed to happen well today it's now sustainment in in many ways and also you know trying to protect the advances that have been made and there are folks like brie and um, blake dremen and so many other folks that are now the person in the arena and they're doing really great stuff and it's to be there as a resource you know you want my opinion know where to find me you're doing a great job keep it up and to amplify their work to to you know to be able to encourage them in the fight to be able to you know provide like i said that you know that utilitarian pragmatic perspective that incrementalist perspective you know because for for, for many folks that you know that now come up behind you know they have the enthusiasm of youth but they don't have the, the temperament of experience you know so it's how do you you know so it's trying to shape folks to be able to say, okay, you need to set some realistic expectations. Here is how this is going to play out. An example, um, I'd gotten asked to, to interact with a postdoctoral LGBTQ group at, at a university. And in the conversation we're having, you know, talking about trying to change the healthcare system to be more responsive to LGBTQ folks to do better at providing care to the transgender community. And the person was saying, well, you know, how can you do that inside the system? The system was obviously built with all the, you know, the cis-heteronormative bias, you know, it's, it's you know, anti-trans, you know, gatekeeping, psychopathology, all of that stuff. It's part of the system. It's the way the system was designed. So how can you change the system from from within? You just need to scrap the whole thing. And my, my question to them was, how many artillery battalions do you have? And they looked at me like, what the heck are you talking about? I says, well, because you're talking about revolution. Because the only way you are going to have that dramatic of a change of a system is by armed force. It's the only way it's ever happened in history, and it ain't happening tomorrow. And oh, by the way, we're the minority. We would need a whole lot of allies to win that kind of a fight. So if revolution is out, you know, if you just can't blow up the system and start all over again, how are you going to change the system? So you have to have that pragmatic thing. And it's one of the things, you know, in the tension is, um, you know, there, there are extremes on both sides. And for disclosure, I always considered myself to be a conservative centrist. Today, I'd probably be more of a moderate centrist because the conservative folks are gone far right, nonsensical, crazy. And my criticism, you know, my criticism of the folks on the far left has been is that their thinking is utopian you know yes would love it if we could beat our swords into plowshares and we'd all sing kumbaya would love it tomorrow would love would love to wake up tomorrow and see that we achieved the more perfect union that we talk about in the preamble but that ain't happening so you have to make decisions you have to offer approaches that are going to actually achieve something for somebody in the near term. 
and often that means small progress. It often means making progress, and someone is always going to be on the other side of the line. The t one of the toughest things to learn is, you know, for those who have been the victim of injustice, who, those who've had injustice inflicted on them, justice is never going to come fast enough. And for some people, justice is never going to come in their lifetime. And that stinks. That, 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 that you know, that, that, that's a horrible, horrible lesson to have to learn. And it's one of the cruel lessons I think that you have to learn, particularly if you're going to be a leader in a social justice space. But that doesn't mean you give up. It means, okay, I'm going to fight the battle today and I'm going to try to win what I can win today. You know, back in the early 2000s, victory and fighting against Don't Ask, Don't Tell was saving one person's career for one more day. Knowing we would eventually win, knowing that policy would eventually die because it was, you know, so bad. But that's what victory was until you can achieve the bigger victory. And also recognizing that, you know, it takes people to play to their strengths and as a leader to try to allow people to play to their strengths. Like, I would not be very good at going to a grassroots community movement meeting. That ain't my forte. That ain't my skill set. Talking at the much higher level, looking at policy and changing the system as opposed to uh, being down on the grassroots is more of playing to my strength. There are other people that do that really well. So you allow them to learn and then use their strengths and, and be able to make those comments and, and realize that there is, you know, the whole spectrum of contributions is what eventually changes big systems. You know, you, you need the person that's going to stand outside and yell and you need the person in the conference room who is having the, con the conversation. Uh, I tend to think that the person inside the conference room having the conversation is going to be a little bit more impactful about bringing about change. But you need the other folks to keep the spotlight on the conversation, to hold people accountable, and to rally people to the fight. And it's being able to convince people to do both. Paula, we probably got time for maybe two more quick questions. Yeah. And having recently had that mindset shift for myself, that it's not about what can I do, it's about what can I do to enable others and that importance of passing the torch, uh, passing the baton, whatever metaphor you want to use to keep making that progress. I want to ask about some of the work you've done to explore the importance of LGBTQ plus cultural competence in medical education. And how is it possible to both continue to do that and also to extend that to a wider population for anyone who may lead or encounter LGBTQ folks? What is that connection that needs to be made so people think, hey, that's actually important and I need to understand LGBTQ folks to do what I do. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things is one, it's, it's the humanity. It's the human story, you know, just bombarding somebody with facts and figures. That's easy to ignore when you're able to share 
This is what the impact of these decisions are on real people. And then the closer that real person is to the individual that you're talking to, whether it's a family member, whether it's something, you know, some way that they can relate. You now, you're playing on that emotional as well as hopefully the intellectual level to, to, to raise that awareness. You know, it's, it's getting to the enlightened self-interest. Here's why this is such a good idea for you of why we need to be more aware, why we need to be more inclusive, why we need to change these systems so that more people can benefit from it. Uh, and, you know, and, and finding the argument that resonates with your audience. And, you know, the quick C stories, you know, backdoor and don't ask, don't tell is I want to talk into a group up in Michigan one time who were extremely on the left, not very military. So me standing there talking about core values and honor, courage, commitment, and lead balloon. So I had to shift my argument to say, you know, the Department of Defense is the largest employer of LGBTQ people in the United States. And if they can discriminate, why can't IBM? And oh, by the way, what about the opportunity for this queer kid who wants to get out of the bad environment or wants to earn money for college or learn a trade that can't because so it's what argument is going to resonate with that audience and it's being able to to shift the focus there um and the you always start off with it's the right thing to do i mean that is always the very first you know you just stake out the really clear moral imperative this is the right thing to do and if that doesn't move you, then here are some of the other more base reasons why you need to be doing this. You need to quickly identify, because there are always those that no matter what you say, they're going to embrace their willful ignorance. And you need to very quickly un real identify who those folks are and not waste your time. And, and unfortunately, when we're talking about queer issues, that willful ignorance is often grounded in religiosity. And it's very, and, and that is where the fight is right now. I mean, the Supreme Court has taken up another case in this term about employment, employers' rights of, you know, ob observing an employee's religious accommodations. And that's the fight for LGBTQ healthcare, for LGBTQ rights right now in this nation. It's those who want to use religiosity as a sword to continue to justify discriminating against queer folks and then the ability of our society to be more accepting and inclusive of queer folks. That's the fight. I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's where the battle is. And it's realizing quickly that if you're talking to someone who has no interest in having a rational discussion with you based on evidence and science and the real lived experience of people, stop. Because there are so many more other people that are open-minded that can be persuaded, and your time is better spent talking to them. You have given us so many wonderful ideas for the work still to be done and how we can think about going towards that work. And one thing that we like to close with is to ask our contributors, what was it that made you want to contribute to this project? And what do you hope to see out of this? What do you hope that we're able to move forward as a result of this work? Well, and back to what I said before is that, you know, getting a chance to participate in something like this is how I get to fulfill my oath. 
you know, everybody knows the part about protect and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, particularly when we live in a time of domestic enemies. It's the next phrase, the bearing the true faith and allegiance. So participating in something about this, you know, giving voice to a perspective and contributing to something that is in some ways designed to keep that faith burning in so many other people or to hold it up and say, hey, this is something to believe in. And I think that's what I, you know, and, 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 I, and I've got every confidence that you folks are going to do that is that it's giving people hope. You know, one of the things about being the co-sponsor of the Harvey Milk is I've gotten to read a lot more of what Harvey Milk had to say. And one of the things that, you know, that he always stressed was, is that you have to give people hope. And it's, you know, hope, you know, hope for the us's is that you've got to continue to, 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 to be in the fight, to, to be out. Uh, and I think that, you know, you know, this kind of program is hopefully some 18 year old kid someplace, you know, who still may not feel comfortable being out. It's going to hear some of the words and I, and I, and I got a chance to listen to the podcast you did with Rafi and it was fantastic is that it's going to hear the words of this series and is going to be inspired to it, saying that, okay, today might stink, tomorrow's going to be better, and that I can have, I can do something about it. So it's that inspiring those folks that I think, and, and I think you're all teed up to do that. Because the last thing I'll leave you with, because, you know, as the historian is, you know, and as a Naval Academy grad, I will actually quote two West Pointers, is after the first day of the Battle of Shiloh, the Union forces really had gotten their, you know, gotten their butts kicked by the Confederates. And William Tecumseh Sherman and Ulysses Grant, Sherman makes the comment is that, you know, hell of a day, hard pressed today. And Grant just looked at him and says, yeah, looking tomorrow. And it's that never given up, no matter how bad today is, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to surrender. I'll fight tomorrow. Paula, we are so thankful you joined us and we're able to share some of those multiple perspectives, uh, different views that you have on how we get to that better tomorrow. And I think if we can have that impact where we just move the needle just a little bit, so tomorrow is better than today, and a thousand tomorrows from now are a lot better uh, than today, we're doing the right thing. So thanks so much for joining us on Forge and Fire. Uh, we were thrilled to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, folks. Thank you for listening to this episode. Forged in Fire is hosted by Brie Fram and Liz Cavallero. Produced and engineered by Frida Castellanos and Christina George. Guest management by Trey Wirth and original music by Bridget Benemark. The views and ideas expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the organizations or institutions they represent. To learn more about Forged in Fire, please visit us at forgedinfire.org.